I recently sold all my brain bombs and Billy Bayo records. Cause like, I just <laughs> this spoke to me 10 years ago in my twenties, but I just don't know if I need this in my life anymore. <laughs> yeah. I haven't put on, I, I still think that shit's amazing, but I don't know that I need to own it anymore, which is a, yeah, that's a, I guess this is growing up. Well, I guess this is growing <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I can't believe I was in a noise band for years and never once told anyone we sounded like Chicago, minus the horns and the rock and roll. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I described Forget the Times to everyone for years. I can't believe I didn't pick up on it. I'm going to have to reform the group just so I can describe us like that. You'll have to freeform the group. Oh. <laughs> Ooh. Well, I'm co-host Jeremy, and I am the head of the committee to just sell the dang White Sox. You don't need two baseball teams in Chicago. Everybody likes the Cubs. Nobody likes the White Sox. <laughs> just sell them to some other city. Whoa! I just felt just the just the facts over here. I, yeah, I, I just I felt a quarter of our listenership drop with that yeah. comment. Unsubscribe. <laughs> well, I am co-host Peter Cook, but a number of years ago, at a former job when I was working at a home improvement store, in the break room, our lockers had our first name as well as the first letter the initial of our last name on them. So mine said Peter C. And one of my coworkers named Belko liked to name off the celebrity names that they looked like. Uh, One was Sharon T. So, of course, she was Sharon Tate. And I was Peter Cetera. Oh. So that's... From Chicago. From Chicago. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You had dorky coworkers. (laughs) Yeah, I fit fit right in there. (laughs) And we have a special guest who is here. I am here. And my name is Lance. Lance Barisi, owner of Permanent Records, the Permanent Records Roadhouse, curator of Brown Acid, and loyal fan of the Chicago White Sox. Oh, no. <laughs> so I felt a quarter. Just kidding. Oh, I was going to say, maybe it was a quarter of the uh, co-hosts no. that I felt <laughs> dropped with that comment. <laughs> Just kidding. I will say, though, as a former Chicago resident, the White Sox are the working man team. Um, the Cubs are more of the elitist kind of, uh, let's just leave it at elitist mainstream baseball team in chicago i didn't know that would you say that the the white Sox are the most underappreciated team exactly they are the they are the most i'd buy that for a dollar baseball team in chicago all right interesting the committee's voting to just sell the dang cubs then (laughs) (laughs) there you go now we're talking flip-flop you get a better price for them anyways (laughs) it's true (laughs) parking's a lot easier on the south side too 
Well, Lance, thank you so much for joining us. You, you reached out to us and, as, as wanting to guest, and this was what, what record did you want to come on to the program and talk to us about? Well, of course, as an ex-Chicago resident, I had to uh, choose the very underrated, extremely inexpensive, and um, pretty much all the way, or good all the way through double LP debut by Chicago, a.k.a. Chicago Transit Authority. Great. And what song would you like to reintroduce the people to Chicago with? I think uh, we should start off the podcast by reintroducing everybody to their cover, their seven minute and 40 second, well, some of their seven minute and 40 second cover of the Spencer Davis group song, I'm a Man. Excellent. And not even the longest song in the album. Nope. Almost half as long as the longest song on this double LP. Well, as this is a double LP, this is side c track three yeah it's weird to even say i don't I, like it i know we, we we have not featured many double lps on the podcast uh, this might be only the second we did donna summer's bad girls way back towards the beginning so i don't think we were even saying the the side in the track name at that point so let's get into it right on to think that at least a few of our listeners out there might be more familiar with the 80s version of Chicago 
and may not have uh, been expecting to hear what they just heard coming out of their speakers. Yeah, there's a, a long, diverse history with the sound of this band. <laughs> yeah, that's this is a band that I avoided looking much into for many years because I grew up on classic rock radio as a kid and had heard all the hits over and over, including a bunch of the 80s songs that I'm not a big fan of still. But going back to this record after Lance was like, we got to talk about this Chicago Transit Authority. And I was like, huh, I wonder why. And then I listened to it and was (laughs) blown away. It's experimental. It's like rocking. It's well put together and sophisticated. It's soulful. It's soulful. Yeah. Insane horn work going on. And the thing I had zero recollection of is the insane guitar work going on as well yeah the terry kath era of chicago is you know almost as different from the later era stuff as the sid barrett era pink floyd is from dark side of the moon or even later into that catalog it's almost like two different bands yeah that's a good comparison as far as just complete shifts yeah and it practically is two different bands by like the mid 80s <laughs> definitely sean dead are you a, a big time chicago fan over there not really for a long time i like couldn't even tell you what songs were chicago and a few years back one of my roommates was like no dude chicago's good and he played me a bunch of stuff some of which like i remembered but didn't realize it was chicago and some of which i was very pleasantly surprised how cool it was but I still have not done like a deep dive in Chicago. I don't own any of their records. I've always known as a record seller that this is like the most valuable of the Chicago records, meaning it's worth like five to 10 instead of like one to two. (laughs) (laughs) I I remember having a lot of the uh, early albums, multiple copies sitting around at corner record shop when you and I were working there, Sean. Yeah, there's you know, all the records up in the bin, and then the box or two full of them underneath, you know. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of record stores have a similar Chicago collections sitting around. Uh, but yeah, so I've kind of, I've known for a while that this is a group that has more stuff than people give them credit for, but I just hadn't really, I didn't dive in yet. The other thing that made me realize Chicago was legit was when I found out how often they would tour with Earth, Wind, and Fire. And mm-hmm. Any group that gets the regular Earth, Wind, and Fire seal of approval, then I'm I'm behind it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that in the like the 2000s, through, throughout various years, they were doing tours where they were like combining the bands on stage. Yeah, that's what I'd heard. Pretty epic. I was just going to say, you know, when a band has existed or exists as long as Chicago did and and still does, and the catalog is, you know, 30 odd records of studio albums, it's very hard. It's it's very overwhelming, I guess I should say, to try to dip your toe into those waters. It's you don't know where to begin. So I don't blame people for not even trying, you know, especially if you've heard some some of the hits on the radio. But one of my favorite things to do is when I do feel like uh, a catalog, a band's catalog is overwhelming and I don't know where to begin, I almost always just go straight to the first album. I think that's yeah. like a pretty good rule of thumb and it it almost always yields 
the most interesting results, even if you do end up getting into a later album, uh, you know, down the line, even more than the first one, it at least kind of gives you an idea of where that band started. And then you can figure out kind of how different they are from what you thought they might actually be and then take it from there. Mm -hmm. The same is true for Jimmy Buffett. He's got a good first record. Totally. (laughs) No one would ever expect it. (laughs) I was just listening to the first Gigi Allen album before uh, we got on here today, actually, which is a very, very different sound than anything else that he did after the fact. It's David Peel produced. It's kind of almost power poppy. It's not terribly offensive. (laughs) Yeah, it's musical. (laughs) It is very. It's melodic. His singing voice is still actually there on that early stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's. Uh, I know we're talking about Chicago, Jeremy. Sorry to get off on a down <laughs> tangent. <from> the <laughs> yeah, <out>. wow. <laughs> well, th- I was just going to say this might be the first time that Chicago, Jimmy Buffett, and Gigi Allen were ever talked about within the same like minute. Yeah, <laughs> the only would, maybe maybe on the best show. <laughs> That's, <yeah. happened. laughs> That's good company there for sure. Well, one thing I wanted to throw out there. I think this is a band that just did not cross like a generation gap. I feel like to our listeners who are like maybe late Gen X or older, it might seem absurd to put Chicago as, you know, an underappreciated unknown band. They sold over a hundred million records (laughs) in their time. (laughs) Yeah. But I know, like, millennials and younger, none of us are listening to Chicago, by and large. (laughs) True. Although I have uh, heard word, um, this hasn't necessarily been my experience, but uh, on Chicago 13, there's a track called Street Player that apparently younger people are are stoked on uh, probably more than they are even on this first album. Um, Weird. That would have been, like, disco era. Yeah, and uh, yeah, nineteen seventy nine, and that one has an eleven dollar median on Discogs, so you can't even feature it properly on the podcast, guys. I'm sorry to say. Yeah, a few years ago, your my inspiration was used in a pretty prominent scene in Deadpool, so I think that some of the the younger generation might have latched onto that song. Yeah, all the Deadpool <laughs> fans. <laughs> Didn't help me sell any more Chicago records at the store, unfortunately. Um, you've kind of got into this, but what what inspired you to bring this record? You know, a, a few different things. But let me start by saying that I think the concept of this podcast is really great. I'm a huge fan of championing the underdog. So always, you know, since we started the store in Chicago in 2006, I've I've been digging for, you know, kind of unsung heroes in the bins and and like y'all did at Corner, putting little notes on on the records that are by artists that maybe people have a certain idea about but don't sound like what they think they sound like, et cetera. And kind of guiding people towards things that are more interesting than they may expect them to be. And this was one early on for me. I don't remember when um I was exposed to this first, but I was certainly not, I wouldn't have called myself a Chicago fan, wouldn't have touched this record with a 10 foot pole based on having heard, does anybody really know what time it is? 
which is on this album. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it is. It's very much on this album. Uh, <laughs> and actually, you know, hearing that song for the first time with the kind of slightly discordant piano intro also put it in a little bit different of context for me mentally. It really kind of pointed out that what you hear on the radio isn't necessarily always what you get on an album, which is is what it is. But it also kind of stoked me out to know that Chicago would get weird. And even on what was probably, what was definitely the biggest hit on this album, they weren't afraid to experiment and try kind of really far out there things. So, you know, hearing that and then digging deeper into the album, you finally uh, do eventually come across what are very experimental elements. My, My history in Chicago, my love of hard rock, which there are a little touches of on this album. Uh, there's definitely fuzz guitar and, and just incredible guitar work all over the place. And just is this, this whole album is just like super funky, uh, groovy to say the least. And um, yeah, it kind of just checks all the boxes. If you, you can have, I would say it appeals to a wide variety of people. And I think it's great all the way through, which is another thing that I think is important when you're recommending something to other people, not to just pick records that have one banger, you know, like I think y'all featured village people, Renaissance, you know, like I love food fight. I think that song's awesome. Most of side B is great, but most of side A is not. And some of side B isn't nearly as great as food fight. It's really all about that song for me anyway. Um, yeah, it's so true. <laughs> meeting your criteria of $5 and under with an album that I think is listenable all the way through and pretty great for the majority of the listen is was important when choosing. It was former guest of the show, Stephen Plastic Crime Wave Krakow, who recommended this to me a few years ago. And I believe the next selection that we wanted to feature is what he was like, that's, you know, that's what you got to hear. The free form guitar track. <laughs> yeah. Let's give it to the people. It feels like the right time. Yeah. So yeah, I think going, going into this one without knowing exactly what to expect is really what's up. All right. Yeah. Let's say no more side three side C track one. Yeah. It does feel weird. Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs>
Those were the sounds of original Chicago guitarist Terry Kath, who we briefly mentioned before. But just to be clear, that is who was on the guitar there. Just, you know, casually inventing noise music <laughs> uh, in the middle of a Chicago double, well, their first LP <laughs> as a band that was a double LP that included that. Yeah, that's how they start the second record. <laughs> yeah, and that goes for almost seven minutes. <laughs> On Columbia in 1969. <laughs> yes, a very major label. <laughs> Uh, if you heard Hendrix vibes on that, uh, you wouldn't be far off. And maybe you already know this, maybe you don't, but Jimi Hendrix has been quoted as saying, you guys are motherfuckers. Terry Cass, a better guitar player than I am. And he wanted to produce the band at some point. And unfortunately, that never came to be due to some untimely passings. But Hendrix complimented Terry Katz playing and, and saw him as a, uh, an innovator, uh, and he was impressed with his playing, which I don't think happened very often. Yeah, Terry Kath is an unsung hero of uh, guitar innovation, I'd say. For sure, and um, in, the, in the documentary, the Terry Kath documentary that his daughter made, um, music critic William Rollman said... Had Kath's group been a power trio called something like the Terry Kath Experience that showcased his playing, there's little doubt he would rank among the guitar heroes of the 1970s. For sure. Instead, he's buried in a seven-piece band called Chicago. Six yeah. or seven-piece band. <laughs> well, let me give a rundown of Chicago. I'm obviously not going to get deep in the weeds because... This band has like a 50-year career <laughs> spanning 38 albums. So we're just going to do the best we can here. Yeah. Yeah, we are just an album one here on this episode. <laughs> yep. So I'm not even going to start with any of the players where they were born or anything. There are too many of them with too many stories. We're going to start at the birth of the band itself called The Big Thing in Chicago. And they formed in 1967, and they started up as a cover band playing top 40 hits in the Chicago nightclubs. Chicago started as they wanted to be a rock and roll band with horns, which goes against the grain of the Beatles era, two guitars and a bass and drums. So they tried to go that direction, and they succeeded beyond anyone's wildest imagination, but we'll get there. <laughs> I was intrigued to find that it was, in fact, in Niles, Michigan, not too far from where Peter and I stand, that an old friend of the sax player, Walter Perizader, and also trombone player for Chicago, he ran into an old friend of his, Jimmy Guercio, who happened to be a CBS Records producer. In Niles, Michigan. They, in they Niles, into... Michigan. Well, I thought the only musical thing that had come out of there was Tommy James and the Shondells, but... No, this is where Chicago caught their big break, essentially, <laughs> because he loved it, and CBS Records did not love it at first. The band moves out to L.A. at Jimmy Guercio's urging, 
and he keeps trying to push the band to CBS Records. They're like, yeah, we kind of have this other horn rock band called Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Yeah. Weak. And we don't really want, we don't want two horn bands. So he saved, <laughs> Jimmy Garcia ended up producing Blood, Sweat, and Tears' next album and used money from producing it to help Chicago record some demos that got them some buzz that got CBS Records to relent and finally agree to sign them. Wow. Whatever it takes. When you were talking about the whole <laughs> rock bands with horns, the first thing that came to mind that was going on around that same time was Blood, Sweat, and Tears, but I had no idea that there was that close of a tie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. So it's at this time they're they've moved to LA and they're playing the clubs around LA. They played it they were playing pretty regularly at the Whiskey at Go Go, a pretty famous club out there. And we're opening for Janis Joplin and the previously mentioned Jimi Hendrix, where he likely would have said that quote. They were also playing a lot with James Gang in the early days, which, you know, I I think most people don't associate James Gang in Chicago, but once you've heard that for this first Chicago album, it totally makes sense. Yeah, yeah. That early playing in James Gang by Joe Walsh was some pretty gnarly stuff too. No doubt. Guitar playing, yeah. Yeah, so then they go on. It's time to record their first album. They're signed, and they want to record this behemoth double album. <laughs> CBS Records does not want them to record a double album. So they tell them that, you know, if you guys really want to do a double album, we're going to take like a a bigger cut of the royalties. <laughs> so they took a pay cut to be able to go forward and do this double album that I mean that's like unheard of. You don't debut your band with a double album i don't need i can't even think of another example of a band doing that frank zappa mothers of invention freak out freak out yeah that's there's not many others yeah Um, and they were they were chicago transit authority at this point correct oh yeah 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 so they when they moved to la they changed the name to chicago transit authority from the big thing Mm mm-hmm and then after this album, had to shorten it to Chicago because the actual Chicago Transit Authority <laughs> was threatening to sue them. Wow. Yes. In the liner notes of the album, there's I, I won't read the whole thing, but it starts by saying the name of this endeavor is simply, quote, the Chicago Transit Authority. And then goes on to say the printed word can never aspire to document a truly musical experience. So if you must call them something, speak of the city where that all save one were born, where all of them were schooled and bred, where all of this incredible music went down, barely noticed, call them Chicago. (laughs) Oh, so it says that in there. There's other great liner notes. Uh, Also uh, one producer's note, for freeform guitar it says freeform guitar was performed on a Fender Stratocaster guitar through a Showman amplifier equipped with a twin 15 bottom utilizing a Bogan PA amplifier as a preamp. No electronic gimmicks or effects were used in the recording of this selection. 
the intent being to capture as faithfully as possible the actual sound of the performance as it occurred. And that's for Terry Cat just making noise with feedback. (laughs) Far out. (laughs) Love it. So avant-garde. Very avant-garde. And that, I would say that the first liner note you read keeps, you know, that captures their image, which was just albums and albums of just the band name Chicago. And it's like little logo script and... They would just name the albums, you know, Chicago 2, Chicago 3, Chicago 4, down the line, because they didn't they didn't think their music could be represented any certain way, so they didn't see any point in, like, naming an album a certain thing for quite some time. Right up until 1978's Hot Streets. True. Finally, they'd found other words to describe their sound. <laughs> you, you break that long streak for the epic album title, Hot Streets. Yeah. <laughs> Chicago 11 made sense, but Chicago 12 just seemed played out, you know? <laughs> Too far. There actually is pretty good reason for that, but we'll get there. Okay, cool. <laughs> I can't wait to find that. Another crazy thing about this album is Chicago the record label limited Chicago to five days in the studio of tracking and five days of overdubbing. <laughs> so Whoa. this whole double album was recorded in 10 days. It's that incredible. is no time. <laughs> yeah. With a seven piece band with all those horns, like that's just wild. And this was the first time any of the band members had been in a real studio recording an album like this. So they're also going in on this crazy short time frame with no experience working in the studio. Maybe that's how they wrote the lyrics to the song, Does Anybody Really Know What Time It Is? <laughs> it could be. Very confused after epic sessions in, in the studio for 10 straight days, knocking out this massive double LP. This thing is dense, too. There's a lot going on. <laughs> I was going to say the, you know, the track freeform guitar suddenly makes sense when you imagine these guys on like probably multiple days of no sleep trying to knock this out in the studio. No doubt. Yeah. So this album uh, actually doesn't sell super well at first, but starts getting a little bit of airplay and it's actually during Chicago two, which was actually just called Chicago when it was released that they actually started getting some airplay and catching on, and the record label decided to put out singles from the first album instead of continuing to push what was on the second album, that this album finally got some traction. Which I'll also note, Chicago 2 was also a double album, as well as the album after it, also a double album. (laughs) And all of them went on to be platinum-selling albums. (laughs) Yeah, that, I believe, is unprecedented. I can't think of a single artist that's ever come out the gate with, you said, three double albums? Three double albums. In a row. Followed by a live quadruple album. And then on their fifth album was their first regular LP, (laughs) single album. And don't forget, that's all in three back-to-back years to 69 70 and 71 
three double yeah. LPs. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. So they are getting famous through the seventies, just album after album, platinum hits, like number one records. They are cruising. They're I was reading at their live shows. They would set up a fake phone booth that they called the Snortatorium, where the band members would go in to do cocaine in the middle of their live shows. So they were partying it up on top of the world. Everything's going great. Just hit after hit after hit through the 70s. Then we hit, uh, then we hit some tragedy. Do you want to tell them about the tragedy, Lancer? Sure, yeah, I'll, I'll chime in. So unfortunately, in 1978, tragedy struck Chicago when their lead guitar player, Terry Kath, was at his home in, uh, I forget where, but in rural America somewhere. He was an avid gun collector and hunter, etc. He uh, had had a little to, to drink. He was a little, um, you know, tore up. He had a gun out. He was cleaning it. He thought the gun was empty. He emptied the clip, put the clip back in. Unbeknownst to him, there was one bullet left in the chamber. He said to his friend, who was a little concerned, maybe even Peter Cetera, one of the other Chicago band members, I think, was uh, the witness, says to his friend, don't freak out, man. It's empty. Look. The last words that came out of his mouth were, it's not loaded. And the gun went off. And Terry died instantly. Yeah. So that that's a wild story to me. Robert Lamb, the keyboard player, claims that Terry had been up for days at that point on a binge. And, yeah, was probably just not thinking clearly. Everyone around him insisted that he wasn't suicidal in any way and that this was definitely just an accident yeah and kind of corroborates that same story that he was just playing with guns and just being a little reckless being reckless and uh yeah his last words just being like yeah what you said there that's wow yeah Yeah, heavy and such a tragedy he was married had at least one child at the time he was the leader of the band. He was the superstar of Chicago at that time. Everybody talks about Peter Cetera in Chicago now, but during those days, it was all about Terry Kath. Everybody knew it. Like we said, even Jimi Hendrix was impressed with his playing. He was knocking people's socks off. And uh, yeah, the world of rock music lost a, a superstar when Terry Kath accidentally shot himself. Yeah. Let's play another song. Do you want to do some Southern California purples next? Yeah. Speaking <laughs> of Hendrix, this one I think is, aside from the feedback on freeform guitar, maybe the most overtly Hendrixy of all the tracks on on this album. Um, it's a banger, straight out of the gate. So we're talking a little side C track two. <laughs> Thank you. 
Once again, I think we I think we need to double back on those horns going on there. <laughs> yeah, it's like what if Jimi Hendrix had had a horn section? <laughs> yeah, that was like blues rocky and just grinding, but those horns are really kind of what makes Chicago. I I got to say it. It's brand on brand, no doubt. <laughs> Love it or hate it. That's that's what you get with Chicago. And um, I don't blindly follow anybody's lead as far as like disliking a certain genre of music if it's got this on it or that on it. Good music's good music, and um, that's that's kind of the moral of the story. I really like on some of the other selections that we're not featuring on this album. I know I know we're relegating ourselves to the side. <laughs> see the side three cuts here but on some of the more pop oriented tracks there's still these weird almost like chimey dissonant they sound like dissonant bells the horns the way they're arranged they kind of come in eerie almost at times do you guys know what i'm talking about yeah the harmonies between the horns and some of the parts they do a great job of building tension with that dissonance yeah they're kind of like a little bit off and then they come together and Yeah. yeah Yeah, and and the cut we were just listening to, some of the swells, Mm -hmm. the horn section swells, even the the the, yeah the intervals of the notes that they're choosing. Yeah, if you don't like it, it's because you don't like horns. It's not because (laughs) because these guys are amazing at what they're doing. It's wild how tight they are all together. Yeah, I'd say they're them and the Earth, Wind, and Fire horn sections are you know top notch, top of the game. No doubt, and the the horns are are on here, and they're used to. I think it's really tasteful the way that they use them, and it's, in my opinion, not off putting in a way that I think you know some other rock records that have horns on them can be. So yeah, that anytime somebody says horns don't belong in rock music, I'll point to this album or the Manfred Mann Chapter Three album just to prove people wrong because it's it's very perfectly uh, done on both of these records. Well, let me wrap up the last 40 years of Chicago in the next couple minutes here. 
Good luck. So, yeah, after Terry Kath's passing, the band is considering just breaking up, calling it quits. They decide not to and decide to go forth with their 12th album, Hot Streets, which is, I mean, it's a big change for the band uh, with Terry Kath being out. And they are also moving into, I mean, there's it's disco. Like, it sounds like a disco album, or at least at minimum Chicago trying to do a disco album. And yeah, they go that direction for a couple albums before they kind of backpedal as New Wave becomes popular and they start to strip it back down. And that's when they hit this long run of just super selling records that are primarily ballads. Yeah, power ballads. (laughs) Power ballads, extremely 80s sounding. The guitar going on in it sounds closer to hair metal, I would say. Yeah, they sound like hair metal power ballads. (laughs) Yeah. So Adult contemporary. Yeah, maybe... Hard pass. Yeah. Artist pass. That's my favorite Chicago stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Said no one ever, and actually everyone. That's that's most people's favorite Chicago stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Not 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 record collector snobs like ourselves, guys, like mainstream. Normal people people that are going to see (laughs) Chicago concerts on a regular basis. (laughs) At Wrigley Field. Not yeah. <laughs> whatever the stadium's called where the whites <laughs> That's where I go see Chicago. Yeah. They don't even name the White Sox Stadium, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so working class. Do not fact check us on that. Do not. Yeah, so they're cranking out hits through the eighties. Come the nineties, they start to lose some momentum as you know. Music's changing quite a bit around this time. They do have an interesting, for their their album 22, which was called Stone of Sisyphus, they decided to try and get like a little more experimental again, and they sort of updated their sound again. And there was like, I, I went and found this album because reading about it intrigued me. And there's almost some like boom bop, or boom bap influence going on and like 90s computery sounds and it definitely feels inspired i would say well the the name of the album alone makes me feel like they're trying to say that they're despite everything working against them they're gonna push that boulder back up that hill and succeed yet again and the record label was like nope (laughs) And they (laughs) shelved the record and it was a, you know, one of those lost records for about 15 years until it comes out as Chicago 32 in 2008. So that is out there to hear now. It's an interesting listen. I don't think I liked it, but (laughs) it was definitely inspired and interesting. I'll have to check that one out. But, Still waiting for the record store day reissue of that one, right? <laughs> yeah. Only CD so far. It's it's ready. <laughs> yeah, and they have continued putting stuff out. I should mention 
uh, Peter Cetera, who kind of became the front man after Terry Kath passed, he left the band in 1985 to pursue a solo career. And they've kind of just been churning members through through the decades as they've continued recording and performing. Uh, currently, the keyboard player Robert Lamb from the original band still plays with them. Lee Lowning, the trumpet player, and James Pankow, the trombone player. Uh, they are the three original members still playing with Chicago. They've kind of had a, a rotating cast since the mid-80s, I would say. But they're still recording. They put out an album in 2022, the Chicago 38. <laughs> Why not? So they're born for this moment. Yeah, they're still doing it. Just not as well, unfortunately, as this <laughs> classic 1969 album. Yeah. It'd be amazing if they put something like freeform guitar on one of their post-1980 albums. Yeah. It wouldn't mean the same thing nowadays, though. No. No, not at all. Everyone would then think they're just ripping off Wolf Eyes. <laughs> I was going to say they, they should do like one of those classic artist albums where they just collaborate with people, but it's all like noise artists collaborating <laughs> with them. <laughs> Chicago yeah. and the Dead Sea. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the people really want. That's what the true Chicago heads are looking for. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what Lou Reed collaborated with Metallica, right? Why the hell not? Yeah, true. Opened up so many doors. <laughs> yeah. with the way that album is received uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> maybe that'll be uh, in an episode of uh, I'd buy that for a dollar 40 years from now Lulu <laughs> Lulu. <laughs> I think that it could be Sean don't you know someone that has the take on it that that's a, a great album that no one got yeah Jeremy Ruggles <laughs> oh okay yeah <laughs> I was gonna say I do know that person it's me <laughs> Yeah, you have two Lulu defenders here. But I also, uh, former guest of the show, Dustin Krasanovich, I believe made his own custom trucker hat that says Lulu is a good album. That's what I was (laughs) thinking of. Yeah, yeah. Who came on to talk to us about Bob James' Touchdown. Yes. Maybe Scott Walker and Son collaborating is a better comparison. True, true. Does make sense. Sean, I'm curious what you found for recommended similar albums to this. All right. I got four albums that have a few parallels to this one. Uh, first is the band that we've mentioned several times, earth, wind and fire. Uh, if you dig into their earlier stuff, it gets more psychedelic. Uh, my pick is self-titled from 1971. Here's some of the, the comparisons of the, the funk, but also is getting, getting weird at times. Next up is the great Philadelphia rock soul crossover band Soul Survivors. Not a dollar record, but their second album, Take Another Look from 1969, again, is a, a really good comparison of that crossover of the like heavier guitar work and psych rock and the, the soul-influenced arrangements. Next up, Daryl Hall and John Oates' War Babies from 1974, the Todd Rundgren-produced album that, again... You got the soul influence, you got the pop rock in there. thought there were some interesting comparisons. And then last up, a record that we featured before, Herbie Mann's Memphis Underground from 69. 
record that is mostly pop except for a couple way out there freeform guitar moments. And I found one at the flea market this morning. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And Lance, you mentioned Manfred Mann's Chapter Three, which isn't necessarily a cheap record, but it's it's one that uh, sounds like it could be a recommended similar album. Absolutely, came out in the same year as the first Chicago album. It's got a it's got a similar vibe, but I think it's actually even cooler than this album. And but it's laden with horns, just done super tastefully in a way that not a lot of rock bands incorporated them. It's it's a stunning record, and it does get underpriced often because people just assume it's the the Manfred Man of the mid to of the mid '60s and not 1969 Manfred Man. Do wah diddy, do wah diddy, diddy dumb, diddy do. I will also throw out there bread. The album we featured was Steve Krakow, who was oh, mentioned yeah, earlier in this episode on the waters. Yeah. Just the way that, you know, in my mind, Chicago was kind of an adult contemporary thing. I had similar feelings about bread. And then we like dug into some of the older stuff and there's some interesting far out things going on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a closet. Well, I wouldn't say closet. I'm not a closet fan of anything. I'm, I I wear everything on my sleeve that I dig. I have no guilty pleasures but i was stoked that steve who's an old friend of mine chicago guy obviously chose bread because i'm a unabashed proponent of bread especially the early shit that's on guitar man from the the album of the same name is outstanding awesome very cool also a cheap record yeah (laughs) very cheap well lance while you're here with us would you like to promote anything that you're up to I love doing shameless self-promotion. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, as I said uh, earlier, I'm the owner of Permanent Records and the Permanent Records Roadhouse, which is a live music venue, a bar, and a record store all under one roof in Los Angeles, California. I'm also the curator of the Brown Acid compilation series where I comp hard rock, heavy psych, and proto-metal 45s, mostly expensive ones, unfortunately, uh, on vinyl, CD, and and digitally with the help of a label called Writing Easy Records. And um, yeah, we do a, a record label ourselves called Permanent Records uh, out here in LA as well. We've reissued a bunch of cool things and done new records by, or, or more contemporary records by newer bands as well. Yeah, and people can see the records you have at Permanent Records on Instagram. Peter and I watch that at Permanent Records Roadhouse. You can see you flipping through those uh, new stacks as they come in. And you curate another compilation called Scrap Metal. Yeah. Of heavy metal, obscure heavy metal 45s. Yeah, most of that stuff keeps me busy 24-7. So You know, the third selection that we featured that heavy hendrix sounding one i don't think i've ever actually heard this artist captain foam have you ever heard of that oh, lance yeah yeah i comped that on 
brown acid, actually. Okay, see, that sounds like, I was like thinking, maybe I, I knew that in the back of my head, but that's like, the, when you said that, that's the first artist that came to mind. And there was this old photo I saw of Captain Foam, and I don't think I ever actually heard Captain Foam, but it was just like a wall of amplifiers behind this guitarist <laughs> that I assume was... Yeah, and that's what I imagined it sounded like. This is a blues-heavy riffage, <laughs> over-distorted. So that's cool. Yeah, maybe that was somewhere in the back of my head that that was connected to brown acid. Yeah, strip away the horns and you're not far off, but Captain Foam takes the heaviness uh, level up like 11 notches. Yeah, that's a that's a story for another time, but Captain Foam is... You can hear um, Captain Foam's track no reason <laughs> on uh, one of the volumes of brown acid there's 14 of them at this point it's very hard for me to keep track of which songs are on which one but if you like the chicago vibe and you're looking for something like that on brown acid the band the canadian band brothers and one have a song called hard on me that has horns on it and there's a uh, a psychedelic rock band called stone garden that incorporated horns in their music their song Oceans Inside Me, also on Brown Acid, uh, mm -hmm. not far off from what we've heard on the Chicago album. And not far from what you're about to hear as we take off here. Yeah, I heard that we're going to liberate ourselves from Side C <laughs> with, <laughs> with, with a little liberation, which is on Side D, Side 4 of this record. Yeah, and is like 12 or 17 minutes or something. <laughs> yeah, F 15 minutes and 41 seconds. And one of the most uh, phenomenal uh, parts about this song is that it was recorded entirely live, completely uncut as it was recorded in the studio in the five days <laughs> that they had to record the whole double LP. Just, yeah, listen or keep that in mind when listening to this song next time. Yeah, this is the final track on this colossal album and, and you requested that we started about a minute and a half into the track when I think Terry starts to really do his thing. Yes. We want to feature Terry Kath as much as possible. And also, you know, some of the songs on this album, uh, poem number 58 uh, is another example of this where it starts off in your more kind of, does anybody really know what time it is style? And then, the band really just kind of goes to a different place and, and goes a little bit further out than I think most people would expect out of a band called Ch or the band Chicago. Wonderful. Well, Lance, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us here at I'd buy that for a dollar listeners. Next week is going to be the final episode of season three. Oh, thank goodness you said season three. I was uh, about to uh, get a little upset. I thought you were going to stop after final episode. Um, well, you've been our goal to get you on, and that was once we did that, we were done. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah right. Uh, anyway, guys, I do want to say thank you so much for having me on. It's an honor. I love the podcast. I appreciate the concept of it and all the hard work that goes into it. It, it is very much appreciated by me and i'm sure many many other listeners please keep it uh keep up the good work we love it oh this Pre is the part of the show where i blush yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't been blushing this whole time jeremy 
I can't. That's two. That's an hour. I can't blush for an hour. <laughs> it just becomes who you are at that point. <laughs> Resting blush face. Resting <laughs> blush face. <laughs> oh, let's call it there. Yeah, sounds good. Right this, this has been I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. I'm Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. I'm Lance Verisi. <laughs> <laughs>